Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. This is Solveig Brown, and today my guest is Bobby Dahlgren. Bobby is a highly accomplished business operations and supply chain leader who recently retired as a vice president at GNK Services. Prior to GNK, Bobby held leadership roles at Best Buy, United Health Group, and U.S. Bank. Bobby is an inspirational leader who is known for building high-performing teams. She is passionate about transforming things to be better, which is why she enjoys gardening of all types, home renovation projects, and even ironing. Bobby has been married for 33 years and is the mother of two adult daughters. She is also the youngest of 12 children. Bobby was in the second cohort of Mentium mentees and has been mentoring for Mentium for several years. Welcome, Bobby. I'm so happy to have you here today. Well, thank you, Solvik. Thank you so much for asking me to participate in this. Bobby, you have been such a fantastic leader throughout your career. So today, I am really excited to talk to you about how you handle common leadership challenges. Before I get into some of the challenges, though, can you first tell me about the skills you use to bring out the best in the people that you lead? I think it it comes down to being a pretty practical person on my part, first of all. Um, I, I know myself fairly well. Uh, fortunately, uh, I've had mentors who have also helped me understand myself. But uh, the one thing I really know about myself is that I, am, I have never been the smartest person in the room or on my team. Um, I know what I do well, and I know where I do not do the best. And so I've had that uh, ability to just say, all right, then, then let's form a team where we can all contribute and I do what I do best and everyone else does what they do best. And I think when you start working from that kind of structure, um, you have mutual respect built within your team and you all get to kind of play in a lane which you can be really proud of and you're working together collaboratively. So um, fortunately through, and I, again, I'm, I'm really not just trying to um, kiss up here to Mentium, but uh, <laughs> the, the mentoring that I've gotten in my past has helped me understand that whole concept of knowing myself and having the vulnerability and humility to bring together the right people in teams. Um, So that would be the first thing. But then secondly, so you've got this team, but if you don't listen, then it's just all a waste of time. And I've always been uh, able to be a good listener. I take the time to really give my attention to people. And um, if I don't understand something, I'll ask. And I'll even ask questions just to make sure that I understood something. Um, and you know, maybe I got to be a good listener because I was the 12th of 12 kids. Who the heck knows? But you don't get much airtime. <laughs> so, um, so being a listener helps you just understand um, really where your team is at, where they want to be. And 
in some cases, you know, what's not going well. Uh, I remember one time when we were going through our um, the the transition into row at Best Buy, uh, which is results only work environment. We were one of the very first groups to go through that training. And as we were talking about uh, the ability to work anytime, um, the, the team fortunately uh, stopped the training and said, well, we have a little bit of a problem um, because uh, Bobby tends to send out emails at 11 o'clock or midnight and we feel obligated to respond. I had no idea that uh, I was clearing my plate at the end of my work day. And unfortunately, I was just uh, laying it on others. And so they hadn't spoken up. And if I hadn't listened to that, um, I would have kept doing that. So that was an easy switch. Um, you know, I just stopped doing that. And so we could all work better together. Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying know yourself, be a good listener, and then also have that open communication with team members so that you can take input from them and they feel comfortable saying if something's not working for them. Right. There's one other thing, though, too, I'd add. You know, in all of this, I think the, the theme for my career has been I want to be the leader that I would want to work for. And yes. you're going to have good examples and you're going to have not so good examples and you can take both and really mimic that and learn from those opportunities. Right. One of the challenges that I hear leaders talk a lot about and even em employees in an organization is being on a team or managing a team where you have a lot of different personality styles within the team or even strong personalities within a team. What has been your experience in leading a team where there are diverse interaction styles and what strategies have you used to kind of leverage those styles to create a high performing team? Well, that's been pretty interesting. I'll talk about my most recent job where uh, I had a team of very high performing individuals and very smart. In fact, one individual, I think, you know, like I'm not qualified at all to say this, but I will anyway. Uh, I, he just seemed like a genius to me. We would often listen to him in meetings and kind of scratch our heads saying, I, I don't understand what he's saying. I don't get it. I'm not following. And then if you just gave yourself a few more minutes, you're, you realize that what he said was incredibly insightful. It just took him in his style a little bit longer to get there. I personally like quirky. And so sometimes when you've got that diversity, I uh, label it as quirky uh, because it just feels more comfortable to me. And, you know, there, it, it's good because we ended up with having these individuals who are so stylistically different and highly independent and could be highly stubborn. We ended up having some very robust discussions. We allowed that direct 
discussion to happen and took the risk of having feelings hurt. We took the risk of misunderstanding and we just needed to keep ourselves on a constant facilitation to understand what we were all aiming towards as opposed to any conflict right at that moment. So the diversity in the different styles was interesting. And I also learned that where I have a very high tolerance for ambiguity, and I like having gray because I like to shift a little bit in that gray lane, others were very black and white. And so we had to understand those stylistic differences to be able to work well together. Yeah, and it, what comes through to me too is that I can tell that you really like the people that you are in a team with and that you appreciate their differences, you leverage their differences, and you create that safe space where you can have those open, honest conversations. And you also even maybe talk about what those differences are, like who can tolerate ambiguity, who can't, and even you know, make light of that, like, okay, we need to have this more buttoned down for so-and-so. Um, you mentioned conflict in your response, and how do you deal with conflict when it arises on the team? First of all, I think if any, if I ever hear anybody say that they like conflict, I just kind of have to wonder about that person, because frankly, it is not fun, and it's much easier to avoid, but then, you know, it just grows and grows and grows. And so you learn by that experience that conflict avoided is conflict that grows. So uh, I think the first thing is just to say, all right, it, it's going to happen. We have to deal with it. I honestly got the best training on conflict management uh, while during my tenure at Best Buy. We went through some training using a book called Critical Conversations, and one of the themes of that book was all about there is common ground in conflict. You might just not know what it is right away. So the more you can question and discuss and listen to others, the more you can get to what is that common ground. I loved this book because it was good for both personal life and professional life. And I uh, had lots of stories and real life examples. And when you have that, it, it sticks with you. You know, stories are the best. And then when you're in a real life situation, you can kind of say to yourself, oh, I remember that story about uh, this and I can use those techniques in a real life situation. So uh, that, that really was uh, important to me. And I think that made me a lot more comfortable just talking about it. But then I also have to add in my last job, we, <laughs> we had a, a rather extreme conflict between the director of quality and the, direct, and the general manager of our manufacturing plant. And so as you can imagine, manufacturing quality often will have conflict, but they also had cultural and 
some political conflict between them. And it was fairly excessive. And so uh, in that case, you know, the book didn't have a good example for me there. <laughs> I just called in a professional. I said, all right. Uh, I went to my HR team and said, all right, I need somebody who can help facilitate a session. And it took uh, multiple sessions, but we actually ended up at a really good place from that. Sometimes you just have to call in the experts too. That is great advice of, of finding common ground. And we'll put a link to that book in the show notes for this episode. But I also like that you say you have to know when to call in an, a professional and that you can work through it and bring the table together. And sometimes it's nice having that third party who's external that is really experienced with conflict management when there's a really serious conflict where you said the cultures are clashing and kind of a political conflict as well. Yeah, she played just this wonderful neutral party who honestly didn't even understand the source of the conflict. And that helped because in getting her to understand it, things were aired out that otherwise wouldn't have been. Right. That is a great example. Many organizations are facing difficult situations in their business right now. How do you think leaders should respond to tough questions from their employees? I think they need to be straight. I had faced several situations in my past with that involved outsourcing. And I found that the best option was just to be completely open with everything that I could be open with. As a leader, you know, there's some things that you you just can't share, but then where you can, share it. Help people understand what the situation is. When you don't, they make up the, the reality. They make up their own version. They'll fill in the gaps. So I'd rather have the gaps filled with as much as, I can share, and then everybody knows everything that's possible to know. Anise is working for an organization that is doing the exact opposite, and she was asking me for some advice and just wanting to vent also, and one of the things she said that I thought was interesting is that uh, after several meetings where questions weren't getting answered, or they were providing answers that really didn't provide any insight at all. The, the whole team, all of her team members, she and her peers were talking about uh, looking for other places to work. So it's so short term and it's bad for the business. You're not going to create any kind of engagement when you can't share and be straight with your team members. Yes, and then the dire consequences of not being straight, of losing morale, of losing employees, and, and then on the other hand, the respect people have of hearing it how it really is, and that they're like, okay, that's how it is, and the stories they make up could probably be much worse than it really is, and so like you said, it's just as great to have really sound information that every can, everyone can work from. Right. 
So one of the things you have excelled at throughout your career is change management. What approaches have you used to facilitate successful transformation within any of the organizations that you've worked at? The, one of the funniest and most true things I've ever heard in regards to change management was shared with me from a person in our in an IT department. And she said, the everyone's favorite system is the one that you're getting rid of. <laughs> Regardless <laughs> of how much they may gripe about it, complain about it, change it, try to remove it, and it is now their favorite system. <laughs> and I think that really just illustrates the fact that change is hard. And kind of that devil that you know feels more comfortable than the unknown. I'm like that. I, you know, I think it's just human nature. So you just have to kind of accept number one, this is going to be hard for individuals. I've worked on a lot of change management projects and you know there's all sorts of different philosophies and processes. I personally like those that are laid out by a gentleman named John Cotter. He's lots of books on it. Um, I love uh, John Cotter's books too. But in that certain steps that I've used, I think have the most impact would be number one, um, really understand your stakeholders. And the only way you can get to know your stakeholders is really just by talking, surveying, understanding, asking lots of questions. There's uh, the whole with them, what's in it for me in change. What are those with for your stakeholders? Get out a chart and just start charting it all down and don't make assumptions. Just because you think that something might be positive doesn't mean it would be for everyone. So number two, I would plan out the whole, like a, a, a one, two or three year plan, but then only focus on a pilot. So that pilot has to be based on the full plan, but is where you get to start trying things out. And that's where you can take the feedback and engage a group uh, or groups of individuals to become engaged in the process. And as long as they are truly involved, uh, they'll be more engaged. And then three you know, you've got your pilot going, you've got change happening, you've got to recognize and share rewards. So people don't like to just be used. And when you can say, we, we really messed up on this part of the pilot and thanks to so-and-so, it came to light and we were able to make changes. That helps people understand that they can provide critical feedback and that it's, you're not just asking for the, here, pat my back now, tell me what a great job we did. Uh, good to know that too, but you want to know both. Uh, so those were some of the things that I really uh, found that helped make change more effective. That is a really great example. And I like that you shared some of the specifics of how you go about doing that and that it's a step-by-step -step process. 
and that the current system that you're using is everyone's favorite. That is really funny. I haven't heard that before, but that is just so true. Like you like what you don't, what you know, what you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So another area that you are an expert in is negotiation. And this is an area that so many people would like to get better at. What can someone do to be a stronger negotiator? You can learn so many skills, so many strategies. One of my very first negotiations was when I was uh, dating my uh, now husband. We've been married for 30 some years and I knew I wanted children. He wasn't so sure about it. We had to get this settled. So I thought I was being so shrewd and said, well, you know, I want eight children. So with the strategy of go in high and negotiate <laughs> down. And he, he thought I was completely off my rocker. <laughs> and, and I almost nixed the, the whole deal. So uh, that, you know, you want to give it a little bit more thought than that. But first of all, learn. I mean, there is just so much to learn about the process of negotiation. You know, don't make the same mistake where I did saying, you know, I want eight, you know, goodness gracious, because I really didn't. But uh, <laughs> there's seminars, there's books, there's YouTubes, there's um, all sorts of resources available. And if you really want to learn more, I suggest that you actually take the time to learn some of the strategies to be much better at this. Um, it's not a thing that you want to just wing. As you learn more about these strategies, I think you would be hard pressed to find one process or strategy that ignores the most important step, which is to prepare. What is it that you need? What is it that you want? What do you think that uh, the other party needs and wants? Learns as much as you can about the other party. That research will be very important and will come in handy throughout the entire process. Now for, for me, you know, then there's lots of other steps, but I learned in leading groups that, you know, team members would go into negotiations on their own. You want to know that they're going to do well. So you role play. We role played the Dickens out of negotiations and change roles, really, you know, try to even, even become absurd, just uh, putting each other through the process of what could happen in a real life situation. Everybody kind of cringes when they hear role play, but seriously, if you just make fun, you know, you can, you can make that fun. And it really helps uh, the feeling of being confident improves dramatically with that role play. I can imagine. And then when you're in the real situation where you're more likely to be nervous, you've had that practice in kind of a safe situation. And it's nice to have several attempts at it within that safe role play and be like, oh no, that didn't work. Or, oh, that was a good strategy. And then be able to use it. That is a great idea. 
You are also a mentee in the second cohort at Mentium. And as we are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, you know, we are talking to mentors and we like to bring in some of the people that were originally mentees and now have been mentoring. Can you talk more about the experience of being a mentee and why did you decide to become a mentor? Oh, it was, it was an amazing experience. I make it sound positive right now. I can tell you at the time I was very early in my career, I didn't understand what mentoring was about. I didn't realize the value that I could get from it. I, I was afraid to be vulnerable. I was afraid to show that I needed help. I wanted to be kind of, you know, miscompetent and it really reduced the value I got out of it for uh, at least the first three months of that relationship. And probably uh, my mentor's name was Kathy, probably made Kathy's life not very fun either because she she was having to pull and pull and pull and try to get me to get engaged. And it just took time for me to understand that this was a trusting relationship and that she was there to help me, not to judge me. And when that bridge got crossed by me personally, it became the most important in relationship I had in my early career. And I am absolutely confident that I would not have succeeded had I not had that opportunity. It opened my eyes and just set me on a different path. Right. And just even sharing about how hard it was to be vulnerable. I think that's a very common experience. And just that once you do establish that trust and you can open up, that it really can literally change your life and your career trajectory and, you know, bring out transformations in yourself that you may not have known were possible. Yes. What has it been like for you to give back and work as a mentor and be on the other side of the relationship? Well, first of all, it's just so interesting to me that it's given me an opportunity to contrast my topics of concern as a mentee some 34 years ago to now. Back when I was a mentee, one of the things we talked about was hiding pregnancies. Should I even have children if I want a career? Oh, wow. could I put a picture of my husband or children on my desk? And now, if I had somebody ask me that, I'd be stunned. It just, it isn't, that isn't an issue anymore. We no longer care if women wear pants, you know, and it's, to me, it just really is gratifying to see that the business environment has changed that much over these years. So uh, that that's uh, just kind of a personal reflection. Now, as far as giving back, oh my goodness, I'm I think it's it's just a gift. And if if it's something that I can do, and actually really provide somebody that help 
much like I got. Um, I just really enjoyed that. And I love talking with individuals about their jobs and their challenges. And it's exciting to hear and see people who are so talented and are looking for that, that extra lift through mentorship. Yeah, and thank you for that perspective of how far we've come in 30 years and that the picture for women in the workplace was very different when you started as a mentee. So one of the things you've done in your career is created a good work-life balance for yourself and for the people that work for you. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done personally to make work-life balance easier and what you've done as a leader to make work-life balance easier? I was very, very fortunate to have, at the time we were starting a family, a husband who understood some of these pressures, you know, this whole thing of being pregnant and trying to be a successful business person. It was tough. And he has been just a a great partner through everything. When I would be uh, putting in extraordinary hours. There were times where he would set me down and say, you know, when we got married, we talked about what our values are as a partnership, as a married couple. And I'm just kind of wondering, are you on track with those values? (laughs) So very good about guiding me back to having a balance because I could take it too far with the amount of work. As it, after we had uh, our two girls and life was getting very busy, it was getting just so hard to, to keep everything going. Um, again, I was very fortunate. He was burned out from his job in the technology arena and wanted to be a house husband and write a book. And I said, yep, go for it. And so that freed us up, freed me up. And I, uh, I was exceedingly fortunate to be able to have that. Now, I couldn't take advantage of that still, but I mean, to, to the detriment of his life. But I also recognized, you know, this is, I was in a position where we could cut our expenses, we could make changes to our lifestyle, and it all worked but not everyone has that opportunity. And so I started back, back, way back when, of just being a little bit of a, of a uh, teenager who didn't let mom know what was going on. And if my team members needed some flexibility that defied the corporate rules at that time, we just kept it on the down low. Then as time progressed, you know, we, we all in corporate world cult- culture became a little bit more enlightened and realized that we could provide some flexibility, but it has always been a bit of a push to do that. And it's always been a negotiation that I've had to have on behalf of my uh, team members to uh, provide that flexibility. And I think that's really been unfortunate. What I, the, one of the biggest benefits of the year 2020 is when I saw companies understand that work can get done 
even if people are at their homes. And you can get work done whether you're in your kitchen or at a desk at, at, at an office. So I'm hoping that we don't regress after this and that individuals have that greater opportunity to find a blend of maybe work doing remote work or flexible hours, whatever it takes to provide that work-life balance. In today's uh, Star Tribune, there is an article about the number of individuals who are just saying quitting their jobs. They feel empowered now. And I'm uh, kind of thrilled to read that because I think there has to be more attention paid to are we providing a full experience for our employees or are we just say saying to them, just do the work and you know forget about your personal life. So I'm getting a little bit on a soapbox here, but it, it really is an, an area that uh, companies could so much improve retention if they would just open up their ideas about flexibility. Absolutely. That is so true. And from people I've talked to where companies have given them flexibility or they've worked for someone like you where they were able to get it either on the down low or that their manager went to bat for them or they had official policies in place. They were so loyal to that company and they worked so hard and they just did everything they could to go above and beyond because they appreciated that trust that they could get the job done however they needed to. Bobby, we have time for three final questions, and I'm just going to ask them. First off, do you have habits that you feel have contributed to your success? Simple question. Uh, number one, how about having some mentors? <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, find your mentors formally, informally, good management, poor management. All of that is a mentorship opportunity. Uh, number two, I'm very organized, and I think that has helped me keep a lot of balls juggling and in the air and uh, keeping that all together. And then number three, I've mentioned books as we've been talking and, and uh, seminars. I love resources. I just think that there's so much good information out there. You don't have to invent everything yourself. Find the experts and use them. Those are great habits. And listeners, just a reminder, we will put those resources in the show notes that Bobby mentioned. Bobby, what would your advice be to up and coming leaders? I, I've been asked this in, in some of the discussions I've had with panel situations. And the, the first thing I always say is find a volunteer opportunity for a group or a cause or something that you believe in and get in there and volunteer. And not as a leader, but as a worker, as a, uh, it, well, okay, Girl Scout leader counts. But when you have to influence and get work done without that title or that authority, you really develop some new skills. And so number one is volunteer. The other thing, I, if I had a dime for every time I've, I've recommended this book, boy, I, I could buy everybody dinner. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. 
I have read that probably 50 sometimes and I get something out of it every time. I, to me, it's one of the, the most meaningful books I've ever read. Wow, that is great advice and a great recommendation. Final question, Bobby, do you have a favorite saying, quote, or motto? Well, they're kind of silly. Um, I, I actually asked my husband this one time and he said, he just started laughing and he said, well, I've just learned that uh, to be prepared when you say, I have a little idea. And apparently <laughs> I say that quite a bit, but when uh, one of my team leads at Best Buy surprised me with a t-shirt that on the front of it said, it is what it is. And on the back of it, it said, who knew? Uh, because <laughs> apparently I also said those two things quite a bit. And I think uh, that it is what it is. Sometimes you just have to accept your reality and then figure out how to move on. It is what it is. I love that quote because it really gets to the heart of the importance, like you said, of accepting what is and dealing with it as it is in that moment. Bobby, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise related to leadership, conflict management, negotiation, work-life balance. I appreciate your passion for transforming things to be better and how it plays out for you as a leader, but also how you use it in your everyday life. I know I will never think about ironing in the same way again, <laughs> because everything can be transformed. And just having that mindset and that attitude makes a huge difference if you take that into everything that you're doing. So thank you so much for that. Thank you all for listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. We have many great guests lined up, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please tell your coworkers and friends about the podcast. For additional resources, you can find show notes on the Mentium website. I look forward to having you all back next time. Bye.